It's said that Hermes, messenger of the gods, instructed primitive peoples in the arts and sciences of culture, giving birth to humanity as we now know it. From the Hermetic perspective, everything is connected by core principles that are seamlessly woven into the holographic and fractal nature of reality. My job is to expose those Hermetic principles to modern people and to inspire an alchemical renaissance so we can collectively integrate them with terrestrial arts and sciences for a more beautiful and sustainable human experience. My name is Phoenix Aurelius. I'm the founder of Alchemiculture, which is a perennial philosophy that incorporates hermetic and alchemical principles into every aspect of human culture, the arts, the sciences, and our relationship with nature and natural resources. Join me as we actively weave hermeticism back into our social fabric. Hey there, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Alchemiculture Podcast. I'm your host, Phoenix Aurelius. Today, we have with you a really special guest, Dan Olson, who has uh, been working basically for many, many years with primitive hunting, primitive weaponry, education. You may have heard his name already by his company, 4D Blades. Maybe you're a student of his actually, and you have studied with him at uh, Tradition School or at the Starry Garden uh, Montessori School of Traditions Education, pardon me. Um, and uh, perhaps you know him from various primitive skills gatherings. That's in fact where I met him uh, recently. Nori and I, back in June of this year, went to Fire to Fire, and uh, I heard Dan talk at the opening circle and just thought, you know what? Uh, his classes, all of them, every single one, and uh, spent the entire time working with Dan. So Dan, welcome to Alchemiculture. Thank you so much for coming on and, and uh, being able to talk with us tonight. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, man, I'm happy that you're here. So, <laughs> you know, I was just kind of letting people know, you know, you're, you're a blacksmith, especially a bladesmith in particular. Uh, you also make bows, you make arrows, you make atlatls, you make, uh, you know, rabbit sticks, you make all sorts of different types of things, uh, snares and so on and so forth. You know, tell us, how, how did you get into that kind of work? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. So when I was a little guy, I think probably about six years old, my grandmother had grown up in the mountains of Southern Idaho. She was a, a daughter of a sheep herder and so she spent most of her time it was during the depression so she spent most of her time roaming and foraging in the hills there so when I was a little guy she'd take us up in the mountains and she'd teach us about the different plants and things and um, I have one memory in particular where she took us on a hike and she had a, a jar of mayo and a, a, a bag of bread and um, she took us on this hike, kind of up a, a creek bed, and she went down into the stream and pulled out big handfuls of this kind of leafy green plant and uh, slapped some mayo on the bread and uh, put this uh, leafy green plant on it and handed it to me. And when you're six, you know, your grandma hands you a sandwich, you eat you it, right? Eat it, yeah. Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> this is normal, right? So I ate it and it had this beautiful kind of nutty, spicy flavor. and. Um, I, I thought, well, okay, this is, yeah, this is super normal. So I grew up thinking that those kind of skills were like part of becoming an adult. If you don't know how to identify the plants in the wild, then you can't be a grown up, right? And so that stuck with me. That same idea stuck with me 
And as I got older, I realized that not all grownups knew this, but I started to really seek out those people who did know those sorts of things. Um, from a really early age, I would much rather be outside than inside. And um, I was always fascinated by things from the past. Um, I, I lived a lot of different places growing up. And so um, the past gave me almost an anchor uh, in my life because I'd, I'd lived in Alaska and Georgia and Nevada and Utah. And my family just traveled a lot. And I, so I was always fascinated by, by things from history and not just museum type stuff that you look at and learn about, but I wanted to experience it. Yeah. So little by little, I just started experimenting with things or asking people to teach me. And um, over time, um, I was able to begin developing some skills. Um, and, uh, but that, that curiosity has always been with me. So that's kind of where I got my real initial start into this, this kind of world of ancestral skills. Man, that's really cool, actually, to hear. And, you know, I remember you telling me about that when we were at Fire to Fire. You know, it seems like the love of herbs and plants and, you know, I guess what we could call in the academic world ethnobotany just in general has been something that's really stuck with you. I'm sorry if I'm blowing the lid on it, but if I remember right, you're actually writing a book about these things. Isn't that right? <laughs> I am. It's it's definitely not a secret. I, I do tell people about it and um, I'm hard at work. Uh, <laughs> one of the challenges of writing a book is it just takes a long time. You know, yeah. uh, I want it to be a field guide so people can go out and accurately identify plants and understand how to use them. So I'm putting the time and the effort into making that happen. I did have a rough situation happen this last year. Uh, one of the computers that I had a uh, majority of the photos on uh, for this book ended up crashing and it was unretrievable. So wow. at first I was kind of, you know, it makes you sick to your stomach when that happens, but it just gave me an excuse to spend more time in the mountains. So, and I, I don't have <laughs> a deadline for this book, which is dangerous because there's always one more thing you want to add. Exactly. Yeah. It's going to go from a field guide to <laughs> who knows a, a encyclopedia, <clears throat> but there it's just so much fun. And when I think about, as you, as you identified the ethnobotany, I am interested in the food and medicinal value of plants, but also the functional tool value. How do we yeah. use different plants and the, the characteristics of them um, to make tools? And through that, we have a really strong connection with our environment. Um, and, and actually, when I teach kids about plants, I refer to the plants as my friends because a good friend, we get to know each other, you know their names, you know things they like and they don't like. Uh, for example, I'll tell them about poison ivy. Poison ivy in particular is a plant that just really doesn't like to be touched. Some of our human friends don't especially like to be touched, right? And they'll yeah. ask us not to touch them. Well, poison ivy has to do it through a different way because it doesn't speak English. And hopefully we understand what it speaks, but um, when we're working with our friends, uh, I have some philosophies that I teach uh, in relationship to plants that we talk about kind of as a, a friendship. So if we're good friends with somebody and we notice that um, they can help us out, we can ask them if they'll, if they'll help us out. Um, but if we notice that they're having a hard time and maybe they can't help us out, then, then we offer to help them out. And we do that same thing with plants. Um, one of my favorite examples is uh, if you have a snack and your friend asks to have some of your snack and you share that with them, 
that's that's part of being a good friend but if they ask if they can have some of your snack and you say yes and they take all of your snack then you're kind of like well that wasn't <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> yeah and, and so that's that's a fun thing that kids can really relate with and i find one of my favorite things about helping kids understand and connect with nature is getting them to really be involved with it so we're harvesting plants they're eating some of them even picky eaters it's really funny yeah. even kids who are picky eaters will eat those plants because they're just really curious about it and um, through that process we give them a connection with nature that they wouldn't have had otherwise but that's something that we've had ancestrally our ancestors had that close connection with nature it was part of who they were and I want to help restore that, um, not just for kids, for everybody. But I think if we start with the kids, then they can help pass that on. That's that's how I got connected into this was yeah. through somebody being willing to share that with me at a time that maybe it wasn't as popular as it is now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there were a couple of things that you were saying there. That, you know, I'm, I'm constantly relating back to the way that plants communicate. Like, for instance, when you go out on a hot summer day and you're walking through, especially, you know, high desert, like we have here in Utah and in Idaho and, you know, Eastern Oregon and other places, you can smell the sage, you can smell the rabbit brush, you can smell the pinon pitch from the trees, you can smell all these things. And that's one of the first ways that these trees are communicating with all of their surroundings. They're constantly emitting volatile oils and essential oils through their living process of exhalation and, and perspiration and so on and so forth, transpiration. And so it ends up, you know, you already are communicating with this plants. They already are communicating with you, whether you're really aware of it or not. And it's funny, <laughs> it doesn't take a lot to learn what Arushiol which is the main communication platform of uh, poison ivy <laughs> feels like or smells like you know even if you smell it burning it's yeah it's a pretty bad one yep yeah it communicates really clearly <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah i think it's cool to open uh, especially for kids most of the time i'm teaching adults people who wish that they would have had teachers like you programs like you in their youth didn't have access to it and then they try and pick up these skills in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, so on and so forth. Um, but it's cool, you know, even from my perspective to be able to see when somebody does pick up on, oh yeah, I actually do know what this communication is. I've just never paid attention to it. It's like voices talking in the background that you just tried to tune out until you mm -hmm. knew that they were saying something valuable. And so, yeah. I had that experience just this last week. Uh, my sister got in touch with me she'd found a little weedy plant that had um, kind of a sticky substance all over it and on the flowers and things. And it had a really strong smell that reminded her of kind of a mix between uh, pine sap and cottonwood buds. We're talking about gumweed? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And she could, she knew what it was communicating, but she didn't know its name. And so we were able to um, identify a lot of the active uh, chemicals that were in it and um, uses that we might put it to um, based on that the smell and the communication so even though she didn't know its name um, because we had had those conversations she began to understand what it was trying to say yeah 
Yeah, that's really cool. You know, gumweed is actually one of my very favorite herbs. It grows everywhere, just all over the place where I'm at. I've got it out in the yard. I've got it, you know, on all of my favorite hiking trails. And uh, out here hiking, there are a lot of springs. And so I don't suggest anybody do this unless they have uh, really good honed in skills and know their limits. But I'll oftentimes hike around without a water bottle and try and just find new springs and new mm-hmm. spots of fresh water. And one of the things that's always carried, carried me through is that gumweed because a little bit of it inside of the mouth creates those salivary glands to just keep going. So you don't get that dry parched mouth um, during that hiking process. And so, yeah, I love it. Well, and of course it's got so many other medicinal properties too, when you tincture it or oil infusions. I, yeah. I, oil infusions, I think are my favorite. I, I really like to make salves with it. Yeah. Um, but you know what I like to do? Cause it's down on the ground and that sort of thing. And you get so sticky whenever you're harvesting it. So I'll get a bunch of kids together, give them paper <laughs> bags and they don't mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> getting sticky and so they'll fill up all the bags (laughs) yeah it's a lot of fun then we then we of course take them and show them how to to make things with them and because it's got all of that uh, the sap and stuff on it that uh, is so active we can get uh, a result from it a lot faster than we do with some of the other infusions that we might do and so it's fun for them to see kind of a a quick uh, result out of that yes yeah that's that's one of the more fun and at least for for our environment here in the mountain west one of the more widely available plants like the the chance of over harvesting that is really really rare yeah i <laughs> be surprised if we I mean, of <laughs> course there's that risk right yeah, so with anything we, we don't want to be too uh, flippant about it but it's very plentiful yeah exactly it's reproductive capacity is sometimes annoying so for sure yeah so well you know you, you've developed all of these skills over the years how did you make the transition between you know learning these traditions and then starting to turn it into a profession what did that look like for you well as you can imagine it was a long process um so learning started when I was really pretty young yeah uh, I <laughs> I have a funny memory. Um, I had been reading a magazine and I found uh, Larry Dean Olson's book, uh, Wilderness Survival, in this magazine. And I thought, this is it. And of course, this was before the internet or Amazon. You know, I, I couldn't just go get it. Yeah. So I started calling around and I was living in Battle Mountain, Nevada, um, next to nothing, right? Yeah, it's exactly. closest town is 60 miles away. And so I called everywhere I could in two states. And finally, I found a place in Salt Lake City that had a copy of this book. And so um, as a, I was 17, I drove all the way to Utah to get a copy of this book. <laughs> and it was like gold to me because I couldn't find any other books like that. There was no other information out there about it. Um, my scout leaders, I was really lucky. Um, they were both into mountain man reenacting. And so they had developed a number of skills, fire building and, and those kinds of things. And were really, really open and willing to share that information. In fact, one of my scout masters, um, his name's David Layton, was the first one to start teaching me about how to make a bow. And so I asked him one day, I said, how did you learn how to make a bow? 
And he says, well, I went to rabbit stick. And I was like, what's a rabbit stick? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> and so he told me about that. And then he told me about this gathering. I was like, are you kidding? There's other people like me out there. There's other people who are interested in this stuff. This is, it's got to be the most amazing place in the world. And to be honest, it when was. I was 17 and I went for the first time, it was the most amazing place in the world. And man, I idolize those guys still, yeah. by the way, <laughs> I still yeah. idolize those guys. And um, so I saw that and I thought at that time, I thought, I don't know how, how I pull this off, but I'm going to do this, whether I do it professionally or not, this is something I'm really passionate about. Yeah. So of course you can't make a living or couldn't at that time make a living doing that. Um, so um, after continuing to do as much as I could and learn as much as I could through high school, um, I uh, moved to Australia for a little while. I was serving a uh, mission there and uh, had an opportunity to get to know a number of the Aboriginal folks that lived there and learn from them. And they were incredibly generous with their knowledge. And that's one thing about this community that I found is the people who have these skills are always willing to share them. Yeah. Um, and that that's something that has made the difference for me and makes me so willing to share. And by the way, the bladesmithing community, for the most part, is very much like that as well. And so through uh, through these experiences, I began to. I don't know if you ever feel really confident. Um, what I mean by that is. The more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't know. Yeah, you know, absolutely. <laughs> And so over time, I began to be somewhat confident. I, I began to feel at home wherever I happened to be um, and had that kind of confidence. You know, I could be in the mountains of Southern Utah. I spent a lot of time uh, around Cedar City area. And then down, uh, I, I did some guiding in the uh, Grand Staircase area. Yeah. And I always felt very much at home there. Um, I spent uh, a whole summer, I, I lived out of my car, you know, I, yeah. somebody could have called me homeless, but it was very much intentional. I lived out of my car and backpacked and did rock climbing. And I didn't really need a lot of money because I didn't have a lot of bills and things. <clears throat> but something interesting started happening. After a while, people began to notice that I understood and knew certain things. And they'd ask questions and I'd tell them a little bit about it. And they'd say, well, hey, can you teach me that? And I'd be like, well, like, yeah, okay, let's here, let me show you something. And that's how that transition started happening was over time, people would ask and I'd have an opportunity to share with them. Um, my family, um, I, I met and married my wife and she grew up as a uh, sheep herder's daughter in the mountains of Southern Utah. Her family owns uh, several hundred sheep there. In fact, if you're ever in Cedar City during the livestock festival and you see the sheep being pushed down the middle of town, that's my wife's family. family. <laughs> I get to help with that every year. It's a lot of fun. That's a, that is well, cool. so this, I, I got lucky in that department sincerely because not every woman is going to be excited about some guy. My wife isn't either, but <laughs> not, <laughs> more than once she's come home and said, Dan, why is there a coyote in the bathtub? <laughs> and I'd be like, well, you know, so-and-so, had it and didn't have time to take care of it and she's like that still doesn't explain why it's in the bathroom <laughs> exactly. well so she's she's a saint um for sure 
but this was something that was also kind of part of her upbringing. And so it became very normal for me to be exploring this and spending the time doing that. And because of her support, um, I was able to begin offering little classes. Well, my family moved. Um, I, I went through college and I was studying exercise physiology and later became a human movement expert. Um, the official title is Fellow of Applied Functional Science. Through that, um, I had work in the fitness industry. Um, I actually was a certified triathlon coach. Um, and um, I made an interesting connection uh, with the, the world of, of paleo diet type things. Yeah. I was, of course, interested in the health benefits, but very much in the does this fully fit our ancestral diet? Yeah. And of course, um, you can't make blanket statements about that. Yeah. Because it we varies. have lots of different ancestral pathways, right? Um, but I found it really interesting and, and was able to explore that and, and learn more about that from a lens of sports nutrition. So I spent several years working in, in sports nutrition. Um, and uh, of course, from the time I was a little child, the the native plants was always very interesting to me. So my family moved to the Seattle area and we lived up in that area. And that's where I began offering classes to different people and actually getting paid for it. And that was um, over, over several years, about seven years. And then finally, my family decided uh, for a number of reasons that we were going to move back to Utah and that we wanted to start a school, mostly because we wanted an environment for my kids to learn where they were, um, they were learning the kinds of things we wanted them to learn, essentially. Yeah. So um, while we were running that school, the opportunities to begin offering classes really, really increased. Um, and that's where I started getting more involved in teaching at gatherings and that kind of thing. Actually, uh, um, Brad Wade, who runs Fire to Fire, right. uh, he and I ran into each other at kind of a, a gathering through an organization called uh, WISE or the Wilderness Instruction Skills Exchange. And he said, hey, I hear you make bows. And I said, yeah. And he says, will you come teach at my gathering? And I was like, oh my, wow, yeah, definitely. You know, because from the time I was 17, I had idolized those guys. Yeah. And sincerely, I felt a little bit uh, out of my league, honestly. <laughs> And I got there and I taught and it went really, really well. And I thought, man, this is, this is really cool. I want to keep doing this. And so <clears throat> this is the kind of thing that I wish I could have gotten into from the time I graduated high school. But the reality for most of us is it's a long, slow transition. Yeah, absolutely. So finally, I guess we're at a point now where we're uh, getting this tradition school uh, really going and we're working with people of all different ages we do teach adult classes as well and, but now this is this is it I do this I make knives and I I teach um, I teach full-time and uh, it's funny because my my both of my parents were teachers and I had sworn I would never become a teacher because <laughs> I knew how hard they work yeah but now because of where I'm at I understand why they work so hard why they cared so much because I feel like I'm very much in the same boat yeah, well, we're almost uh, at the top of our, our 30 minutes here, uh, so we're going to take a break, but when we come back, I want to actually talk a little bit more about 
the way that you teach and the integrated way that you teach, because even though I learned amazing skills from you, I was fascinated with how you interact with all of your students. And, you know, I saw you with kids. I saw you with adults. Uh, I saw you with a wide range of age groups, and it was just so impressive to me. So let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Stay tuned. Are you looking for the highest quality herbal supplements and remedies for your home apothecary? Or maybe you're looking to take your spellcraft, magical workings, or offerings to the next level. Whatever your reasons might be, we have hundreds of herbal spagyric items available, and every purchase supports our work and helps bring spagyria into the light of the modern world. Here at the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy, we produce dozens and dozens of items of spagyric pharmacopoeia each year, even though we only need a few samples for our research purposes. So the remaining quantities are available to the public in our online spagyric apothecary. Only the highest quality natural, organic, biodynamic, and ethically wildcrafted materials go into our products, and every purchase you make helps fund our research. As an Alchemiculture podcast listener, you can get your hands on our professionally crafted small batch spagyric products for 15% off using coupon code LISTEN15. So go ahead and browse our enormous selection of products and get yourself something new or pick up one of your favorite products today. Visit phoenixaurelius.org apothecary and enter coupon code LISTEN15 to take 15% off your entire order. And thanks in advance for supporting our research. All right, guys, thank you for joining us. Today. We're back from the break, obviously, and we've been chatting with Dan Olson. Uh, right before we went to the break, we were actually just talking about uh, how he got into teaching and his work that he's currently doing with uh, Traditions Education. He was also talking about teaching at Brad Wade's event, which is Fire to Fire, which is where I just met Dan and, and actually got to work with him. You know, while I was observing you, you know, I took, for, for those of you who aren't familiar with primitive skills gatherings, they're usually about a week long and you have about five really heavy, hot days of classes that you can take with a lot of people, especially at Fire to Fire. It was like a Monday through Friday type of thing. Uh, I took Dan's uh, bladesmithing course, made my own knife. In fact, you know, got that on me right now. I can show that to the audience. I don't go anywhere without this blade now. This is such a point of accomplishment, man. Is that sheath working for you? The sheath is working great. Yeah. So, and uh, the only thing that I would have done different, which, you know, like you said, it's not going to, this is my first knife. It's not, not my last knife. I love these finger grooves that I have in it. I just wish that I would have maybe made the handle a little bit thicker. It does fit in the hand really nice. And I can put my thumb on the back of the blade and, and create a lot of control with it. But uh, it, it, there's a particular technique to holding it that I wish I would have created my, uh, my handle just a little bit thicker. But I also made a bow with Dan uh, carved out of a hickory stave. And then um, we also made rabbit sticks too. And so the bow making and the rabbit sticks were on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And the bladesmithing was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class. And I worked my butt off. It was crazy, but I wasn't the only one. And in fact, it was so surprising to me, Dan, because there were people of all ages, like especially in the bladesmithing class. Like we had some kids that looked to me, I'd never asked their age, but they looked somewhere around nine to 12 years old, maybe. And then 
we also had adults, you know, well into their 40s and 50s. And the way that you interacted with everybody was so amazing to me. And what was really amazing was that you were so spot on with your memory about where everybody was at in their projects, what their project looked like, everything throughout all three of the classes. That was just really amazing. The level of attention and dedication that you offered as a teacher was something that I don't regularly see. And when you said that you teach kids for a living, it just touched my heart so deeply because this is something that most kids never get is a quality of education and care from a good majority of their teachers. A lot of teachers are admittedly there for a paycheck. They, they did it because they have a, a degree. They went into teaching. They don't know what to do. If they don't do that, they would have to kind of reinvent their lives. I can tell that you come at this from a place of passion. Um, one of the things that you were talking about, which I felt was so important, and I'd like to dive into this a little bit more, was the practicality and hands-on nature of learning. So at Traditions, you, you actually teach physics, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how you teach physics. Like, you know, uh, how would you teach about velocity and curvature and you know, physics and trajectory and all of those things. Like, you know, you were yeah. talking about teaching kids with ballistics and stuff, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. In fact, that's what we call my uh, physics class. We call it ballistics. It's applied physics. So if we can step back just a little bit, the human Please. brain is, is phenomenal at learning. We're really good at learning. But if, if we lean on this ancestral uh, philosophy, the philosophy that as humans, we come from somewhere, right? We didn't just spring into life with an iPad in our hands and whatever else, right? We come from somewhere. And that history uh, does kind of influence the way I teach. So our ancestors, the way you learn from your, uh, your grandmas and aunts and uh, dads and all these other people, the way you learn from them was by being with them and doing things with them. You learned cooking by being at your, your mom's elbow while she was cutting up the things and, and cooking. You learn hunting by going hunting. So you learn not by sitting and listening to people talk about it, although I have a whole other conversation about storytelling. It's really kind of fun. Right. But you, you learned by doing. And so as humans, um, the least effective of ways that we often learn is by sitting and listening. Yeah. Um, we're very visual and we're very hands-on and our brains struggle to focus on things if we're not doing something with it. Even as, uh, as our species has kind of gotten to where we are during the long winters when there was nothing really to do but sit around, we would still do things. We would still work while somebody sat in front of the fire and told stories. We always did something with our hands. So if you're one of those people who can't sit still, even when watching TV and you have to have something with your hands, that's because that's part of who we are as humans. Keeping our hands busy is part of who we are. So that influences the way I teach. So when we go back to this ballistics class, the very first thing that we want people to be able to do is understand the language. Because if I start throwing words at them like velocity and uh, mass and any of these other things, and they don't know the language, then it doesn't matter what I say. Yeah, it's just too heady it's, and it's above, it goes right, right in one ear and out the other. Right, and it might make me look good, right? And they might be like, well, he's super smart. I have no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. 
he seems like he knows, right? <clears throat> well, that, that doesn't mean anything and it doesn't help them and they don't progress. So we want them to learn the language. So we spend time teaching them the words. For example, um, we want them to have a physical context for the words and, and visual um, anchor points so that they know what the word means. As babies, that's how we learn language. Yeah. So when we're teaching the, the physics class, we start out from the very first day learning about uh, the different laws of motion. We talk about um, how those laws of motion work, and then we go and experience the laws of motion. So for example, an object at rest will remain at rest until acted upon by an outside force, or an object uh, in motion will remain in motion. Well, we go out and we put objects in motion. We take an object with less mass and we get that moving and see how far it goes. We get an object with more mass. We actually threw an anvil this last year, which is super fun. <laughs> and we get that moving. And you realize that the object with more mass is harder to get moving and harder to stop. Yeah. And those are things that we kind of know intuitively. When we're teaching the students about trajectory and those kinds of things, we use arrows and we, we do archery in the physics class. We do um, uh, shoot rockets. Um, we talk about some of these other principles of drag and those kinds of things and, and how they work. <clears throat> but we don't just talk about it, we do it. So whenever you're learning a concept, if there's not something that you can do in relationship with it, then it's really hard to, to continue to understand that language. And then just like we're teaching any other language, we use it over and over and over again. We use those words and we remind them what those words mean. And we invite them to use the words. So yeah. we have kids, I think this last year, the youngest kids I worked with were seven-year-olds. Um, yeah, six and seven-year-olds. And these kids, they knew the laws of motion like better than most adults, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest. And they could recite them, but not because they had just memorized them, but because they knew what they meant. And that was really important. Um, and they, they had fun. And here's a weird thing about human brains. We're, <clears throat> the human brain, we have those two parts. We have our, our rational thinking brain. We have more of our survival um, uh, fight or flight type brain. Well, if, he, if humans are in a place where they're curious and playful, their brain is really working. That part of their rational brain is really, really working. If they are feeling stress and anxiety because you're making them sit still for long periods of time or you're threatening them with tests or if you, you know, if you don't learn this, I'm going to be so mad or I don't know, whatever, yeah. right? If you do any of those things, then you're going to switch their brains, which go into fight or flight really quickly or that fight, flight or freeze, right? You're going to switch it into that so fast that their poor little brains just won't absorb anything. But at the same time, Kids are natural learners and they learn through play and through experience. And, and they're like that from the minute they're born. They're mm -hmm. experiencing the world and you get to really see it come around <clears throat> when they're a few months old, but it continues to grow and it, it doesn't have to stop. Humans learn naturally through that experience, through play and through being curious. And, and the funny thing is it's not always easy, but it's always interesting. 
So by doing that, by taking the learning and putting it into something three-dimensional and tangible, uh, where they're having authentic, authentic experiences connected with the, uh, the education that we're trying to give them, whether it's history or physics or chemistry or yeah. uh, language arts or any of those kinds of things, if we can give them that experience, then they're going to learn it really, really well. And the, the most important thing as teachers is we don't want to steal that from them by making them afraid of learning yeah. or making it painful. It can be uncomfortable. Learning sometimes is uncomfortable. Yeah, That's not a big deal, right? Um, but we want that curiosity and that playfulness to always be part of it. You know, I think that that's really important. You know, going back to my days working with the Alternative Education Resource Organization or just ARO, um, there were so many different styles of education that I was really exposed to. You know, free school, Montessori schools, uh, Waldorf education, uh, schools that would just kind of hodgepodge lots of different types of philosophies together in a way that worked and met the demands of what their community needed and so on and so forth, you know, various types of out-of-the-box homeschooling and all these other things. It seems like from what I'm ascertaining from you that traditions education has kind of done that very same thing is take the elements of education that work, don't necessarily stay inside of a box, focus on the kids and how to be able to make the information relevant and fun and interesting to drive that neuroplasticity to levels that you, you can't possibly see in conventional education. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think you summarize that really well. Our, our goal is not necessarily to adhere to a particular dogma. I have Montessori training and Waldorf training um, I am not a certified teacher, um, although I've done an enormous amount of learning in how to become a teacher. From the beginning, though, my goal has been, how do I become the most effective teacher? And there's a huge amount of research that supports this particular method. And in fact, if you go to a public school and you ask any of the teachers there, what's the most effective way to teach? They will repeat the same kind of things that I'm saying. Unfortunately, those poor teachers are in a situation where they're underfunded and they have too many students and they are so restricted by this huge bureaucracy that they don't have the freedom to work in the way that they, that they know works. Yeah. And so uh, I, I have a lot of sympathy and I personally, even though I've decided to make teaching uh, kind of my life's work, I wouldn't do it in that environment. You couldn't pay me enough. I, I have a lot of sympathy for them because I, I know that they know what works best and I know that they are often frustrated um, even though they're working hard to make it the best possible experience they can for their students. Yeah, you know, it's funny because we were talking with Lindsay Sharman. She runs Rogue Ways, but she was a high school teacher in a very conventional high school and middle school teacher. And I mean, she's taught all sorts of different types of grades, but just a couple of episodes ago, that's exactly what we were talking about. And it ended up, you know, we were talking about what didn't work for her and why do we think that the, the public school system as it currently stands today in so many places, because every public school is actually different, but, um, 
why, why does it not necessarily work for the majority of our students? Why do we have so many dropouts? Why do we have so many people who are struggling, lack of people who are interested in learning or who even understand how to learn? That's the biggest thing, you know? School should be to teach us how to learn. And at the forefront of that, this is probably why I was so impressed with the way that you teach is the engagement of it. If people can be engaged, curiosity takes over and learning is something that happens as a byproduct of the curiosity that is inherent to the human condition, not necessarily something that feels like it's laborious or tedious or something that needs to be done, but something that wants to be engaged in. Uh, do you find that a lot with, with your students that they want to learn more, that they want to go deeper with these things once, once you teach various yeah. subjects? We really do find that, but here's the challenge we run into, um, depending on when we get them. Uh, so if I have a student uh, at Starry Garden, those kids started with us sometimes as young as three years old. And if I had that student all the way through fifth grade, then they were just natural learners. And many of those kids were reading at a college level. And then they were, I just sat back and let them <laughs> research the heck out of stuff, right? I mean, yeah. there's certain things that was just a little bit out of reach because they hadn't matured enough or developed enough that they fully understood it. They were so hungry all the time. On the other hand, um, as you were talking, I just got thinking about this a little bit. I, I had some kids that were middle school and high school this last year. <clears throat> and um, when we started working on math, man, you would see their, their whole disposition change. Yeah. They went from being curious and interested to being like, oh, math, you know, which is so sad because math is the language of the universe, right? Yeah, exactly. And we are residents of the universe. And we should know that language. It is so cool. Math is really is. exciting. Um, I actually wasn't a great math student when I was in high school. And then part of the reason I wasn't is because of, I just didn't realize um, how interesting and fun it is. Same. It wasn't until I was in college, actually, I was taking a trigonometry class and I was like, this is horrible. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand any of this. This is meaningless to me. And I failed my first trigonometry class. And I thought, man, this is, what am I going to do? Right. <clears throat> so I went back to retake the class and in the very first class, the professor stood up and began talking about the history of trigonometry. And she talked about how trigonometry was used in ship navigation, celestial navigation. I was like, whoa, how come nobody told me this? Celestial navigation is so cool. Yeah. So I skipped, I skipped the next two weeks of class and I spent that time in the library learning about celestial navigation. And then I came back to class and I understood the language they were speaking. Yep. I understood the sine and cosine and the coefficients and, and why those worked and their relationships. And it made so much sense to me. So when I have these kids who come in who have, we, we call it the ghosts of education past, uh, <laughs> who've had these really tough experiences with yeah. learning, which, you know, learning can be hard, but it shouldn't be painful. And I, I say yeah. that a lot, uh, where they had just been told that they were bad at math. Right. Like you can be good or bad at it. And that's not real, right? No, that's not either, a real perception. You've either learned it or you haven't learned it. Yeah. Um, and, and learning it comes through a lot of different methods. And so over time, we were able to explore math with them. 
and take a step back from the memorizing uh, formulas and equations and that kind of thing. Just step back and let's experience the math. Let's understand how it works in the real world and in three dimensions. And let's talk about why we want to use this kind of math and and how interesting it is. They're not going to be they're not going to believe me that it's fun until they've had that Experience. opportunity yeah. to get through and and have it not be painful right painful things are not fun yet <laughs> well especially if you don't have any end goal in mind like for instance you could go to the gym every day well you know this this uh, goes back to your days of coaching triathletes yeah you know the pain actually leads to the gain which leads to better ability to compete and to have a better chance at, at at winning and doing doing something that is personally meaningful showing your skill to yourself to others whatever whatever that drive may be but you know i think that that's really important like yourself it wasn't with trigonometry for me it was physics uh that changed everything for me in high school, you know, I was taking calculus classes and, you know, trying to get as far as I could because uh, my senior year of high school, I was already enrolled in a lot of different college courses, namely for linguistics and, and foreign languages. I had already, it, by the time I was a junior, I had already gone through the highest level high school Spanish that there could possibly be. And I had, I started in French three, my very first year, just because I understood the concepts of it. And, and so I was, by, by my senior year, I was already taking concurrent enrollment courses with our uh, with Weber State University up here in Ogden. But I was taking the most advanced math classes that I possibly could because it looks good on my transcripts. I was going for full ride scholarship for linguistics and other things. And you, you typically in the world of academia, you want to show that you're a very well-rounded student. Mm -hmm. Well, I just couldn't understand why they had me plotting points on hyperboles <laughs> and trying to calculate this really nonsense material. It's like, when will this actually ever come in handy? And even the physics teacher that we had uh, at my high school, his name was Mr. Lindsay. He was a fantastic teacher. Unfortunately, I didn't get him. And I got a brand new teacher fresh out of college named Mrs. O'Toole. We just, we never did enough labs and we never made the math that we had to do relevant. It was always just memorizing formulas, memorizing formulas. And then the tests were these long, grueling five page things just full of arbitrary formulas. Mm -hmm. When I got into college, kind of like your experience with Trig, I had a professor who was amazing. She showed us waves and how to plot waves and understand wavelength and all these other things by teaching us with singing bowls and how to hammer out singing bowls. Um, she taught us, you know, all of these really amazing things in a down-to-earth practical environment that made all of the calculus training that I had all of a sudden relevant and fun. And it made all of those equations make sense because you can understand something practically without understanding it philosophically. In fact, the majority of what are perhaps unduly called uh, uncivilized cultures or primitive cultures, that's what they do. They understand the, the, the practicality behind it, not so much the science or the philosophy behind why it happens. Oftentimes it's given, you know, this kind of mystical association or mystical reasoning. And it's so cool once you learn the mathematical language, because then you can take it to entirely new levels and perfect the craft of what you were doing in ways that were completely unprecedented before. 
And so while you were talking, that reminded me of my experience was just like, it, it, it mirrors the exact same thing. Yeah, I, I really think about that. And with, with things like physics in particular, I, I, something I say quite often is if you are taking a physics class and something is not flying through the air, then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> uh, because yeah. physics is the science of movement, right? Yeah. And so stuff better be moving. You yeah. know, um, it's funny you mention uh, some of the, the ancestral or ancient cultures how they understood things from a practical level. The rabbit sticks or the, the hunting boomerangs right. is one of my favorite examples of that. The, the level of understanding of aerodynamic principles that goes into making a good boomerang or a good rabbit stick is really, really amazing. And the fact that without any other knowledge besides cultural experience, these people all over the world in several different settings and environments were able to um, create these tools that work so effectively. Uh, in fact, so effectively that there has never been a time in human history that we know of that they haven't been part of our history. Yeah. Even our, from all the way up to modern history where um, these tools are used the way they are. But the fact that they understood airfoils yeah. so well um, to the point that they could use them to hunt animals in motion is just amazing. And as you say, once we begin to really understand it, then we can start doing some cool things with it. Yes. If we understand the math behind it. But when was the last time you were in an algebra class and somebody was like, well, let's talk about, about hunting with rabbit sticks. Let's, exactly. let's really get into this. Or the, the, I think often about the sophistication of composite bows. Uh, that are made with horn yeah. and sinew and wood and the level of sophistication there is phenomenal and i thought man how did they go from making these wood bows all the way to this level and it came through a deep understanding of the world around them they understood the animals and the plants and the trees um, and all of the things that came together and that was their material that's what they had to work with but they understood it at such a level that <clears throat> some of the most amazing bows are these ones made out of doll sheep horns, you know, that are thin yeah, yeah. backed doll sheep horns. And at some point, some guy along the lines was like, Hey, you know what? I bet this would make a really cool bow. Who knows <laughs> when, right? Seriously though. Yeah. But um, when you understand those, those concepts of compression and tension and some of the things that are going on there and not just the fact that there's compression and tension in a bow, but that you have to have a very specific mathematical curve from the handle to the tips to get it to bend evenly and, and be able to reproduce that over and over again in a way that was effective enough that you could feed or defend your family with it. Wow, that's just amazing. Yeah. I, I, I struggled to log into our meeting today because I do not have a deep understanding of, <laughs> of Zoom conferences. <clears throat> Fortunately, I understand bows and rabbit sticks a little bit. <laughs> well, that's good. Everybody's got their area of expertise, I suppose. Yeah. Well, you know what? Let's, let's actually go ahead and take a break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit more about uh, some of the bows. And because yeah, you are a professional boyer, you make bows for people. You also make knives for people. I want to get into a little bit more of that. So let's take yeah. a break. 
And uh, we'll chat more about that when we come back. Maybe like us, you're not too hip on all the wireless radiation penetrating us all the time and disorienting the harmonious state of the natural world. The World Health Organization even admits that cell phone radiation is a class B carcinogen, and the scientific studies of the deleterious effects of wireless radiation on health grows larger each day. But bioarc discs structure the radiation that's around us, rendering it harmless and even beneficial according to the tests that we and some others have run on them. BioArc discs come in three sizes, small for cell phones, tablets, computers, and personal electronics, medium for Wi-Fi routers, large televisions, and other household electronics, and large for entire rooms, computer server stations, and other large-scale needs. We have a BioArc disc on all of our tablets, phones, computers, electrical devices, hell, even on our fridge and our Wi-Fi router. Using our Trifield EMF meter here at the Research Academy, we've shown that the RF frequency the standard and weighted magnetic fields and the standard and weighted electrical fields are all drastically reduced back into safe zones using the simple invention. For a limited time, you can get four small bioarcs for your personal electronics and one medium bioarc for your wireless modem or router for only $164.79 with free shipping when you order the bioarc family pack using the affiliate link on our website. Visit phoenixrelius.org, click on the media tab, and then scroll down to the Alchemiculture podcast page. Then, just click on the BioArc Family Pack and order yours today. As with all the links on our podcast page, this company offers us a small percentage of sales to help fund our research and make this podcast a possibility. So go ahead, get your BioArc disc today and start structuring the radiation in your environment. We're back from the break. We're here with Dan Olson. We have been chatting about education. We've been chatting about lots of very fun and interesting things. And one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about, because this is maybe one of your areas of professional expertise, in fact, the things that people are going to know you for the most, is your work with bladesmithing, your work with bowery, also your work with basketry. Um, let's, let's talk about bladesmithing first. Um, first of all, how did you get into bladesmithing? So, I, like any boy, I, I got my first pocket knife, I think, when I was eight years old. Yeah, uh, I was living too. up in Alaska got it for my eighth birthday and it was that opened the world for me of course I cut myself right away and got that out of the way quickly <laughs> like you do um and but that became kind of my way to interact with the world around me in different ways and, and so I can hardly think of a time in my life where I haven't had a knife with me um, the one exception is I occasionally have to travel and get on airplanes uh, I have some funny stories about pre 9-11 airplane kind of things and being allowed on airplanes with very large knives, which was just nuts when you think about it. <laughs> but they've, they've always been something that I've been connected with. So when I was 14, uh, my family did this. My, my parents were teachers. So our summers were often spent traveling. Uh, when I wasn't working in construction, um, we were traveling. So we did this big trip where we drove uh, through the Midwest all the way back to New York. <clears throat> and on the way, we did this big loop. On the way out there, uh, we stopped um, in uh, several historical sites, uh, living history type places. And um, one of those places was uh, Nauvoo, Illinois. And there they had a blacksmith. And I thought, man, I didn't even know people did this anymore. This is so cool. I, it was... <clears throat> 
it was amazing. And at that point, he wasn't making knives. He was just blacksmithing. But, you know, when you're growing up, you see the movies where they make the hero sword or whatever, and they blacksmith out the sword. And it's just really cool. Of course, there's so many fallacies in movies. Oh, um, it's ridiculous. But, you know, that's that's Hollywood. It's movies. Right? It's I mean, entertainment. It's not historically accurate. It's not meant no, to be No, no. <laughs> and so, um, so there was that part of me was like, man, it would be so cool to forge my own knife. So that same year, I had figured out uh, through talking to some of these guys at these living history sites, um, and I'm sure they got tired of me, but actually, you know, maybe they didn't because they yeah. seemed very eager to share information with me. Through talking to them, I knew that I needed a hammer and an anvil-like object yeah. and something to heat it up with. And that's all I knew. Um, and so I was very resourceful. I'd been studying traditional skills since I was a, a kid. Um, so I raided my, my dad's shed and I found a, a little um, crossbeam sledgehammer. Um, and I, I can't remember what I was using for an anvil, but I think it might've been an old piece of a uh, railroad track. Oh yeah. And <clears throat> so then I couldn't find uh, an oxygen source to get the fire really hot, but I had dug this pit in our backyard we're out in the Nevada desert, so nobody cared that I was building a fire in the backyard. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I dug this pit in the backyard and filled it with charcoal, and I I stole my mom's hair dryer, and got this hair dryer and used that to heat up the um, the, cold. the fire and get it hot enough. Yeah. It it wasn't a real blower or anything, right? It was just a hair dryer on some coals, and uh, a piece of rebar or something like that, and I. I got into it and I started hammering on this thing and it never actually turned into a knife that first time. I did get in trouble, by the way, for stealing my mom's hair dryer. She did buy me another one though later. <laughs> she was like, here's your own hair dryer, Dan, do whatever you want with it. Very supportive. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but I, I just beat on this piece of metal until it was flatter, you know, and, and it, and I was so hooked. You know, I don't know how long I was out there. It felt like maybe 15 minutes, but it might have, it probably ended up being several hours. And I didn't have, I couldn't stand and do it. So I was kneeling in the dirt and hammering on this, <laughs> this railroad oh, track. And luckily, none of the neighbors were very close because I, that probably would have been shut down a lot faster. But I was really fortunate that I was able to experiment with that. And so from there, I just continued to, to learn what I could. Of course, this was pre internet and pre YouTube. So there wasn't, yeah a lot of sources out there and you couldn't even find books on the subject. I'd go to the library and try and find books and you couldn't find books. Wow. It, it was this small town library yeah, know, yeah. in the middle of Nevada, right? So they just didn't have the information. So a lot of it was just kind of learning by doing. I, um, my dad was a, a school teacher, but during the summers, he was a building contractor. And so he would build uh, and remodel homes. And from the time I was 14, I worked with him over the summer. So I was very comfortable with a hammer in my hand and um, built a lot of good muscle memory and that kind of thing through the process. So this went on off and on for many years of me just trying to figure things out and experiment with them. Um, about the time I was in my I was in my early 20s, I became friends with a guy who was a farrier, uh, a horseshoer. Yeah. And. Uh, he said, oh, you like to blacksmith? Let me show you some stuff. And he, that was the real transition for me, where I went from <clears throat> hammering out a lot of things really badly to hammering out 
still a lot of things not as badly. <laughs> and one of the things I, I often like to tell people, and I, I said this to you, yeah. um, it's not your first knife, right? My yeah. first knife was way worse than your first knife. <laughs> and, and and the thing is, as you're doing that, if you're comfortable with being bad at things, then eventually you can get really good at it. Yeah. But you have to be comfortable being bad at it for, for a long time. For me, it was many, many years of being really bad at it. Um, so then um, working with him, that was the real transition, where then I was able to take those skills that he taught me and uh, begin to transition that into knife making. And that's when I first started making knives that I felt like were okay, pretty decent knives. I was very proud of myself. I still have a few of those that I, I keep around to remind me kind of where I've come from. Yeah. Um, yeah, so through that process, eventually people were, would, but actually I had a neighbor come over one day while I was working and say, well, what are you doing? You know, there's smoke and fire coming from my house. So it was <laughs> nice of him to come check on me. And, and I showed him and he was like, wow, oh, wow, you make knives. That's so cool. And I, you know, it was, felt awkward and whatever, but um, he said, can you make me a knife? And we we're able to kind of talk about it. And <clears throat> so I think a lot of us who've gotten into bladesmithing um, go through a phase where we're, we're a little embarrassed by what we're making and we enjoy the process, but we're not so much about wanting to sell it necessarily. Sure, yeah. And then we get to a point where people are like, well, Hey, that's pretty nice. You, you know, I, I'll buy that. I'll pay you for that. Um, and, and of course we don't know what to charge for it or anything like that. And so you go through a time period where you charge way less than anything you make is worth. Yes. <laughs> and, and so there's that, that long process, but over time, over several years, I got to a point where um, I, in order to progress further in this hobby that I had, I had to improve the equipment that I had. So I had been using a coal forge in, uh, for most of my career. The thing about coal is it, it takes a long time to heat up and it takes a long time to cool down. So when you're working on it, it's, it's a day long commitment. Yeah. And so I switched over to propane because you can turn it on and turn it off, which is really nice. That was a big transition. And then um, I, I purchased a two by 72 belt grinder, which took yeah. me from being able to take a week to make a knife to being able to turn one out in um, around a day, uh, depending on the, the type of knife I was making. And so that became uh, the real game changer for me. And at that point, my wife and I had had a long conversation because these kind of tools are not cheap necessarily. The, the grinder is $1,700. Um, we had a conversation about, you know, maybe I want to spend a little bit of my time um, making and selling knives and, and do this semi-professionally. And um, she said, well, you know, you're kind of do it anyway, so you might as well keep doing it. <laughs> if you make some money to pay for all the stuff you use, then that's all the better, right? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, it kind of went through that. Um, and so I'd post pictures of the knives I was making on, on social media. And um, to my surprise, maybe more than anyone else's, people asked to buy them. And I'd say, well, okay, not <laughs> <laughs> sell them the knife. But um when once we had decided to make that transition, I decided to form the company 4D Blades. And when I did that, I did some market research. Uh, I have a background in marketing and business development. And um, 
I did some market research and found out what people were really looking for in a knife. And I summarized that as the four Ds. That's um, detail, durability, uh, design, and of course, because I'm telling you about it, I can't remember all four of them. Uh, <laughs> it's not funny the way that one works. <laughs> yeah, dependability. There's the fourth D. Uh, yep. Right. Dependability, detail, design, and durability. And so I put that into everything that I made, uh, whether it was the leather sheaths. I taught myself how to how to do leather work. Started doing that as a young man as well. And so the the leather sheaths. I wanted them to be something that I could be proud of that would be an heirloom like the stuff that i had seen in the museums that was hundreds of years old and i thought man it'd be so cool if hundreds of years from now one of my knives was in a museum yeah. or it had been passed down to family members one of the things that really hooked me was i started having people ask me to do heirloom knives memorial type knives there was one set that i did for a gentleman where we incorporated some things from his past and his relationship with his father i was able to use his dad's old gun scabbard to make part of the sheath the oh, big old wow. leather gun scabbard and the antlers from the first deer that they shot on their first hunting oh, trip together that's and cool. that was that was just so cool and then other guys would come and they'd have the the ivories from their first elk and they'd want that inlaid in the handle and so making these functional works of art really spoke to me and and of course, there's a certain level of, of that curiosity and that hunger that I have to learn um, that plays a big part in this because every knife that I make is custom and they're all different. And because of that, there's a learning curve with each one. You get better over time and it gets easier to make new knives each time, but <clears throat> there's always going to be a little bit of, well, what's the best way to get the result that I'm looking for here? Yeah. So that's, that's been a really fun process. And of course, I, I continue to do it now. Um, right before uh, our, our COVID situation, I began looking at expanding the business and, and producing more um, handmade production knives. And uh, so we had put out a, a line of fillet knives. The young man I had working with me, a really cool, hardworking guy, had a, a background as a traditional blacksmith, but not a bladesmith. And um, he was making some really good knives. And so we were able to do those right around the time COVID happened. He was living up there in, in the Ogden area and um, had just gotten married. So he couldn't travel back and forth. And, and we ended up having to shut that down, but it looks like we will be bringing that back in here in the near future. Oh, good. Yeah. We're hoping. And then we can produce some of these handmade knives for a little bit cheaper than doing uh, a lot of one-off um, knives. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. So listening to you, I've, I've got quite a few things that I wanted to break down and kind of unpack. First of all, going to Nauvoo, I'm assuming that that had a lot to do with your faith and faith history. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening and don't know Nauvoo, that's where the first LDS temple was built. That's also where Joseph Smith actually ended up dying and where Brigham Young continued in that lineage bringing people out to utah and so it's a huge site of pilgrimage just like uh for muslims it's mecca nauvoo is a huge site of pilgrimage for most people in the lds faith so that's really cool that you actually got to have that experience as a kid going there and working with the blacksmiths which was so contemporaneous and necessary as a skill 
during the life of the LDS prophet, Joseph Smith. And so I think that that was absolutely awesome. That, that's super cool opportunity and experience. Well, they said the, the blacksmith was the heart of the town yeah. because no other trade could function without the blacksmith. It's true. Your cobbler couldn't do it without the hammer and nails. Your uh, farrier, of course, couldn't do it without the horseshoes. The wagon rights couldn't make wagons without the parts from the blacksmith. So, I, as you say, it was an essential part of life back then. Oh, so essential. You know, uh, here in Utah, we've got this large amusement park called Lagoon. Of course, you're probably intimately familiar with Lagoon, having lived in Utah yourself. I tried um, to avoid it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I tried to avoid it too. But as a kid, it was always something that, you know, that, that's where you go to have a little bit of, of fun. And uh, parents typically feel free, you know, leaving you there with a friend or two and just run amok but they've got this cool area in there which i still when i do go this is where i spend almost all my time is a pioneer village where they have yeah. all these old actual historic pioneer cabins and furniture and all these things and they have an actual blacksmith cabin out there with all of these original tools from the 1800s from you know from the mid to late 19th century that are just so well preserved and it's just so cool to see and connect with that and as a really young kid that was part of what got me very interested in uh blacksmithing and always you know having that as a lifelong dream is like you know it's someday i'm gonna get into it and finally fired fire was the moment i did it it was it was a dream come true for me but um are you familiar with this is the place monument park in salt lake yeah, I am. I, I've never yeah. actually been there, but uh, the, I so understand. Think of the, the Pioneer history. Village, but it covers uh, several several acres. It's it's enormous. Oh, man, they I'm have a salary and uh, they have an, uh, an herb um, apothecary there. Oh, uh, brilliant. And of course, the blacksmith shop and that sort of thing. Yeah, yep. it's, it, it's worth the visit. Man, that that whole time period was just so idyllic to me. It was, you know, you had the enlightenment happening, you had so many different types of philosophies and ways of life, but things were still moving slowly. You know, you still had to move by horse and buggy, you still, or train, you know, which was a, a relatively newer thing that was coming on the scene. Um, yeah, it's just, it's so fascinating to me. I just really love that time period, but I'll, I'll stop being so, uh, <laughs> romantic about that time period because the next thing I wanted to talk about was the work with the farriers. Um, I noticed during my time working with you that you have more rasps than I've seen anybody have ever. Was that working with the farriers the, the first time that you realized like, oh, wow, these rasps, uh, they can go a really long way. Like we can use them on bows, we can use them on rabbit sticks and wood projects after they're done with being used, you know, serving their lifespan on hooves. Um, and then you give them life to blades after that and kind of immortalize them. Is that kind yeah, of so where that's, your inspiration came That's through? a fun process. So I was first exposed to the farrier's rasps working with farriers. Um, I didn't do a lot of the horseshoeing or that kind of thing. Um, but very quickly, because I was into making bows, um, I, uh, a farrier would, would throw away a rasp. And they, they need to be really sharp for horseshoeing in order to yeah. be effective in what you're doing there. And so they'd throw one in a bucket and I'd say, well, hey, can I have that? Because it was, you know, it was good enough for what I wanted to do with it, yeah. for making bows. 
uh, or the rabbit sticks and that kind of thing. And they'd say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just going to throw it away. Right. <clears throat> and I'd be like, whoa, OK, cool. <laughs> Thank <awesome>. you. Thirty <laughs> something dollars a piece. And so I, I OK, great. Thanks. <clears throat> well, after a while, I started just collecting a lot of them. I have, I have more than I can count right now to be honest, but it's because I just continually collect them. But what really happened was I had this old cowboy friend of mine who is just really a neat guy. Uh, he was a worked for the forest service when he was younger, and then he became an English teacher and he spent a huge amount of his life teaching. Then he retired and um, became uh, continued educating because he doesn't know how to stop working or educating. <laughs> so, uh, he spent the last 20 something years of his life uh, robbing the train up in Heber city, the Heber creeper yeah. um, as dressed up in, in period correct clothing and that kind of thing. Well, he and I became friends uh, through some of the blacksmithing stuff. He had questions uh, about some tools that he had found on his property. And so we got chatting about him and kind of got to know each other that way. Well, <clears throat> um, through a series of, of different things, um, he uh, he had asked me about a farrier's rasp, if that would make a good knife. And I was like, oh yeah. And I showed him one. He was like, oh, that's so cool. And so we got talking about it and I said, well, here, I'll make you a deal. These farrier's rasps are, you know, they're, they're worth something and I'll use them. Uh, I said, if you'll bring me a five gallon bucket full of these, I'll give you a knife, I'll trade you. And he, man, he, well, he's retired. He's got all the time in the world on his hands. He went to every old cowboy that he knew and every farrier that he knew and everything else. Well, he comes back and I, he's got buckets full of these wraps. <laughs> and he was like, well, you think this is enough? And I was like, oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's the thing, you know, I'll make, I'll make a few knives out of farrier's rasps every year and they make really good quality knives. But the reality is I, it'll take me a lifetime to make enough knives out of all these rasps. So anyway, I, of course, I, I made him a knife. And um, I, I actually, I think I'd shown you the knife that I made for him. It's the one that I brought. To yeah. Him. Well, and it still um, actually had some really cool designs from where yeah. the, the rasps actually are. That was, that was really rad. Yeah, it, it just looks so cool. And it's, uh, there's some historical precedents for that. There's some people that say that one of Jim Bowie's first knives was actually made out of a, a farrier's rasp. Um, we don't have that particular knife anymore. Well, I, actually, there's the one that he had at the Alamo. And we do have that one. They think that was made from a, uh, a file or farrier's rasp of, of some type. So there's some historical precedents for that. Um but yeah, they're, they're really cool. And as you say, we use them um, once we've used them for horseshoeing, then we use them for making bows. Um, we use them for making rabbit sticks and on and on. In fact, the pieces that I cut off the rasp to make knives out of, we use those little extra pieces and we make flint strikers for, for starting fires and that kind of thing. So we're able to really utilize that that tool and as you say immortalize it in some ways because those things last forever man that's really cool so i'm assuming that because it's already more or less a forged piece of steel that working from a rasp like that would be significantly less work than what we ended up doing at fire to fire because you can just yeah. get, pound it to get you know kind of get that bevel on it and then take it to the uh, well, with 
with farrier's rasps, we have to use almost an entirely different technique. I'll do a little bit of forging with them, but they're already a flat piece of metal. Right. So we anneal them, we soften them um, in the forge. Um, and then after they've been annealed, we'll grind all the little teeth off. And then we use a method called stock removal versus forging. So stock removal is basically you cut out the shape and then grind the bevels and that's it. It's really, wow. I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's a much simpler it's process easier. than taking yeah. a little one by six inch piece of steel that you started with. Um, so the reason we do that rather than forging it to shape is because those little divots that are left behind where the teeth were, yep. if you forge those and you get those closed shut, it creates something called a cold shut which can be a weak point or a stress riser for that knife. And it can actually cause that knife to crack either in the heat treat process or later when you are uh, using the knife. And when you think about having a knife break uh, while somebody is using it, the risk for injury is really high. And as a bladesmith, it's something that we constantly want to be aware of that we don't want someone to get hurt because one of yes. our knives didn't work the way it was supposed to. Um, so we use a completely different method with the farrier's rasp. Um, and it, it takes some time. And, and to be honest, a lot of the uh, commercially made knives are made using the stock removal method. Uh, almost none of them are made with a um, forged. Uh, you'll find them every once in a while, but very rarely are, are production knives made that way. Yeah, well, and understandably so. They'd be actually pretty cost prohibitive, you know? Yeah. So that's really interesting. Do you any do you do any smelting and molding of knives um, like uh, before before they go to the forge, like kind of getting a basic shape, or is that uh, from what well, I understand, smelting actually removes a lot of that carbon from from the steel, so it make it yeah a hard. So that's one of those those inaccuracies that you see in movies all the time, right? Where they'll have this mold, this stone mold or whatever, uh -huh. and they pour the molten metal into the mold and it's glowing and it looks awesome. Yeah. You don't make knives or swords that way. Um, you might be familiar with um, bloomery iron or tomahogany, yeah. uh, Japanese steel. And so <clears throat> the process of taking uh, your mineral iron to an iron that you can forge and, and then converting that into a steel it's kind of a long process and heat will will steal that carbon it will rob the carbon yeah. from the steel uh, so as we're forging you'll get little flaky bits off the side which we call forge scale and those are essentially a cast iron they're a very very hard uh, carbon poor piece of iron and so um, we don't do a lot of casting uh, of steel or um, uh, we we don't use a foundry or that kind of thing with yeah. steel. We do use that when we're working with um, some of the more uh, white metal type things like your you know, copper and brass and, and some of those silver, of course. And so sometimes we'll do that in processes where we need a piece to go on a knife, um, right. whether it's a guard or the butt or that kind of thing with the knife. But um, even then there's methods that we use with that, where they are sometimes forged, for example, copper, uh, we will forge copper sometimes, but the process is very different uh, because of, well, really it's the chemical structure, the, the crystalline structure of the different metals uh, respond differently to different temperatures. So 
um, with with steel and iron in particular, you can get iron hot enough that you can pour it into a mold, but it wouldn't make a good functional usable knife. And so it's not something that we ever really do. I have been experimenting recently. Um, I found some iron deposits and I've been playing around with um, making, uh, going through this process, not because it will ever make me any kind of money because it's way too expensive yeah, and way too time, uh, yeah, time invested in it. Um, so, but the process that, that goes back and it feeds that curiosity that I have of, and, and maybe that connection with my past a little bit, right? I, yeah. um, I have, uh, my ancestors are very much Northern European. Um, you can tell by my last Olsen. name. It's a very strong Nordic name. Yep. Yeah. My, my dad's ancestry as far back as we can find is in Denmark and, um, and Switzerland. Sweden, uh, right? Sweden, Sweden, Sweden or yeah. Switzerland? both oh okay yeah um mostly sweden uh we have some his dna says that he's related to the sami people you know the reindeer herders oh yeah but as far back as we can have record uh we're we're danish and so the that connection with the uh quote-unquote viking you know blacksmiths and the work that they were doing with steel which forgive me for saying this because not everybody's going to agree with me was some of the most amazing stuff that was being done with steel at that time period long before the japanese were doing what they were doing well Um, and the the japanese their steel was folded because they had really poor quality iron and steel they had to fold it because it was such poor quality not because that was the technique that they would have used had they had european grade materials to start with yeah so and that's a whole, we could talk about that for hours, but <laughs> that, that idea of being able to take a mineral uh, from that very beginning, you know, we now have this rock and eventually it's going to be an iron, excuse me, a steel blade. That process fascinates me. And it's not something I've been able to, I'm hardly an expert there, but I am the kind of person that's constantly pushing the limits of what I know and trying to understand better. Unfortunately, there's people who know more than I do about this. So there are people I can go to and learn from. Yeah, absolutely. But it's true what you said, the Ulfbert style knives uh, and, and rather swords. That, swords yeah, uh, yeah Ulfbert that were coming from uh, the, the Viking, what we now conceive of as Viking or just Nordic territories, were extremely prized all over Europe during you know, the period of the, of the early medieval ages and uh, late dark ages. So, you know, they, they did have really good quality steel and they were making really awesome. Uh, and then, you know, eventually Spanish steel became, you know, exceptionally popular because they figured out really great ways of infusing carbon into mm-hmm. theirs so and made it, you know, strong and basically made the Armada and, you know, the conquistadors a, a possibility. Um, so, yeah, that's all really fascinating stuff. Well, you know, you also make bows, though, for people. I've seen you recently actually making some Plains Indian style bows. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, that's been a lot of fun. I was out. You might have seen the video, but I was out testing those the other day. I did. Um, and they're they're just so much fun. Uh, these short little bows. They're very, very snappy. You know, they are. So yeah. When we're we're building a bow, we go back to the physics, right? Because 
physics is the language you, well and math are the language of the yeah. universe so um <clears throat> but understanding the physics helps you understand um how that bow is going to work and the limb speed um how quickly it returns back to its point uh that uh velocity um has everything to do with the eventual momentum of the arrow of course the mass of the arrow matters as well but it has a lot to do with the eventual momentum of the arrow and those short bows because they don't have a lot of mass at the end yeah. holding them back can just really move those arrows fast um you know i and I, so i have that little bow that i just finished is a 35 pound at 23 inches so we don't have a lot of extra build up that momentum right and the draw weight isn't really really heavy uh there were there's a number of historical examples that were much heavier this one is not sinew backed um, i will be doing some that are sinew backed here in the future but <clears throat> just this this little design here which is a, a close replica of um, some of the museum examples it gives you an opportunity to kind of explore and understand what these people were looking for so they needed a bow that could take down a buffalo and also be used on horseback. Yeah, that's a big deal. So it needed to be short but reasonably powerful. And so there's some really fun things that go into it. For example, the bow bends through the handle uh, in order to wow. to use that extra space uh, as working space. You don't have the freedom to put a, a nice thick handle on it where it won't yeah. bend because then you'll put too much stress on those limbs um so yeah those those bows are a lot of fun i have a couple more in the works i'm doing a little uh plains indian style bow that has recurve tips and then i'm going to be doing one that is more of a reflex deflex style out of uh some choke cherry um but that one will be sinew backed um for uh for a friend of mine so yeah That's they're cool. they're a lot of fun uh we were talking about the um the viking uh time period and some of those uh, Indo-European uh, groups that were in that area. And they have some really, really cool bow designs um, that when you're thinking of it from a design perspective or understanding of the, the physics of how a bow works, um, they're really amazing. There's one called the Home Guard, uh, and I'm not pronouncing that as well as you would, uh, but- <laughs> Not <laughs> a linguist, guard. don't worry. Everybody's got their specialties. Yeah. And, but that bow is really, really an interesting design. I've done uh, a few of those. It's one of my favorite longbow designs. Um, <clears throat> but those are uh, really a cool uh, bow design because of how they, they work. They have a long lever arm at the tips um, that is not a bending bow, but it's also not a recurve bow. I think the next natural step from there would probably be a recurve style bow. But then we can look at the history and understand that uh, sinew backing a bow in that part of Europe wouldn't have made sense. Yeah. Um, and also in, in Great Britain, where we had the, the English. Too much longer. humidity, right? Yeah, too much humidity. You, you just wouldn't have gotten the extra benefit out of it. There's some people, and of course, I'm not suggesting that this is historically accurate, but there are conversations in the bow making community that feel like that was one of the factors that stopped the Mongols, uh, the Mongols right. invasion. Uh, because their bows stopped working the way they were supposed to. And so all of these people in the forests of Europe with these long bows were able to, and there's a lot more history than just this one piece, but were able to continue to defend themselves from uh, these Mongols who were coming in and invading during that time period. So yeah. 
but, get out of but, that dry, arid climate, and all of a sudden your bow doesn't have the same snap. The sinew is coming off, you yeah. know, and you, you not know. to mention they were getting into more forested areas, and that affected yeah. their their combat style. Not, you know, the reality though is they were they were pretty formidable group coming into oh yeah to Europe there, and they conquered an awful lot of it. Sure and did. so there, there's other factors as well, but there's conversation that that is one of the factors. Um, so, and, and actually you see that repeated in the uh, Americas where the East Coast Indians had longbows that were very recognizable as longbows to the Europeans who were coming through. In fact, a lot of the British colonists recognized that these guys were excellent um, archers and bow makers and um and respected them for that and then when you head out west um to the drier more arid places that's where we start seeing sinew backed bows um but we don't see that in the eastern woodlands or in the southeast or, or those kinds yeah. of areas uh, they stuck with the the long uh self bows the all wood bows in fact yeah. the bow that you made uh at fire to fire was more of a cherokee style bow yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that would be, you know, some, I mean, obviously it's not sinew backed. It's going to be one of those bows that you get a piece of wood. It's going to work really well in humidity and it should work equally as well in an arid environment. So a little bit better, in fact. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's just because the wood won't take on as much humidity and therefore has more tension to it as you're in the draw weight or how does that work? Yes. And also the, the weight of the, the limbs, the limbs are lighter weight, therefore they uh, move faster. That makes sense. Cool. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll go ahead and do uh, our final part of our interview. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, some commission work that you're doing, some of your more fun projects, and then find out how people can get a hold of you if they're interested in bows and knives and especially education for their kids. So we'll be right back. In today's age of rampant toxicity, it's important to have effective products at your disposal to maintain balance and well-being. One of the best products I've come across in over 15 years of actively looking for the best of the best for myself and my family is Zach Bush's Ion Biome products. Ion Gut Health in particular supports the body's production of beneficial enzymes through cellular communication. These enzymes help support the seals between the cells in your gut lining, thereby giving you a first-line defense against invading toxins like the infamous glyphosate that's so notorious for completely destroying gut microbiome health. The most recent scientific studies suggest that somewhere around 70% of the human immune system is built in the gut and the gut lining, and this barrier is critical for your total well-being. So if you're anything like me and you care about the total health of you and your family, then do yourself a favor and order some Ion Gut Health today. Visit phoenixaurelius.org, scroll to the media tab, and select the Alchemiculture podcast page. From there, you'll see a link for Ion Biome's Ion Gut Health. And as with all the links on our podcast page, this company offers us a small percentage of sales to help support our research and make this podcast a possibility. Well, we're back from the break. And uh, again, we're here with Dan Olson. We've been chatting a lot about blades, about education, about bows, all sorts of things. I'm sure that you and I could actually probably go on and on for a long time, Dan. We have many, many similar interests and, and listening to more of your story today uh, as well. It sounds like we have a lot of similar background or at least takeaways from the experience. 
uh, of learning and education and interest in living history and things like that. But, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the, the commission work that you've done, some of the more fun projects that you've worked on in the last couple of years. Does anything really stand out to you in terms of knives or bows or even education? You know, I'm, I'm a lucky guy. I get to do the things that I'm really excited and passionate about. So <clears throat> um, I... I'd mentioned at the end of the last segment um, that I was excited about the um, the Nordic history yeah. and um, those those bows um, from my ancestral history. Uh, so those those bows have been really fun. Um, <clears throat> I'm most excited about these Plains Indian bows that I'm working on because I don't have a ton of experience working in this area. So it's a new area to kind of explore and. Uh, to learn about. And so this is, this is one area. It's a, it is a commission that I'm working on in the process. <clears throat> I want everything that I produce that goes out to somebody to be really high quality. Yeah. Um, and so as a result, um, I've been commissioned to make a pair of bows um, that are a uh, Lakota Sioux style bow but in order to get there, I need to be really confident that whatever I send out is going to be really good. So in that process, I'm actually making several bows before I make these and send them out. So as far as bows go, that's something I, I'm really excited about. And I'm having a lot of fun um, taking the, the skills that I've developed in the past from all of the, the hundreds of bows that I've made and putting it into this. Um, <clears throat> And of course, with making bows, because we're using natural materials, we never really know for sure what we're going to get. We can guess and we can have experience that helps us kind of get there, but it's hard to know for sure what we're going to get. Um, from the knife perspective, when I think about the, my, my knife projects, I've got a number that I'm really, I had a lot of fun making and I loved the stories. So I talked a little bit about some of the stories of knives that I had made, and I, I like to learn from people what what's inspired them to commission a knife. So the knives that I make are 100% um, custom made. What that means is that somebody calls me up and says, okay, so I'm thinking about having a knife made. Um, <clears throat> and I'll say, okay, well, what do you wanna use it for? Uh, what does it mean to you? What, what are the goals that we have for this knife? And then through that process of conversing back and forth and me drawing designs and sending them out to them, and we kind of go back and forth, we'll make little tweaks to the designs. I get to know these people and I get to understand at least that small part of who they are and why that's important to them. And through that process, we come up with something that is super personalized to them. When I think about human history, and I, I of course I go back to this quite a lot, but from the time we were, before we were even humans, we were using sharp edged tools. That was part yeah. of who we were. So now making a knife, we're connecting them with all of those uh, millennia of history to those people. It's an extension of who they are. Yeah. And so I love that process of personalizing the blade to that person. Um, <clears throat> so there's, there's a couple that stand out to me. Uh, we had talked about the farrier's rasps and uh, that kind of thing. There's a, a gentleman who got in touch with me 
and asked me if I could make him a Bowie knife. Um, he's, he's an older gentleman. Uh, his wife passed away a number of years ago, and he's a collector of Western uh, style stuff. Um, yeah. Regalia and that kind of thing. He collects old guns. And, and um, so he asked, he had commissioned this knife and we spent a lot of time talking about it. And he wanted something that, <clears throat> that fit what he was going for but he couldn't quite put it into words. So through a conversation, I, I drew him some designs and I was able to send him the design that I was thinking of that, to make sure that we were on the same page. And he felt really good about that. <clears throat> then through the process of finishing his knife and getting it out to him, um, it became kind of a, a, real, a real precious um, symbol of, of what he was doing. Most of the knives I make are for people to use, you know, they're going to go out and they're going to clean their deer with it, or they're going to yeah. use it in their camp, or they're going to use it for something. This is one of the very few knives that I've made. That's probably going to spend its life like a museum piece, but it was, it was, uh, it was an interesting process making that knife and getting to know this gentleman throughout the, the process. And it's become a centerpiece of his collection, which makes me feel really good. Um, and it was something that I felt really good about as I was making it and, and able to fit what he was looking for. Another one that I, I, it was a set of knives actually, and it's not a style that I do very often, but they were these big overbuilt Tonto style chopper knives. There was a pair of them and a gentleman from Ireland had gotten in touch with me and he said, hey, I'm looking to have these knives made this I and he had designed them himself um he was a soldier is a soldier and he was looking for his dream knives the knives that he just had wanted from forever now, he was not an artist and he was not really experienced in knife design so he was willing to listen to me as i made some suggestions about changing it but staying true to that design that he wanted and um <clears throat> so then we got going building the knives and the knives were coming along really well. And one day I was in a army surplus store and I'm walking around and, and you know, like collecting camping gear or whatever. And I saw these old Navy um, duffel bags, the kind that, you know, stuff all your gear in yeah. before they put you on the ship, right? And I saw those and I thought, man, it would be really cool to make these into knife handles. So we use this process where we um, impregnate fabric with resin and press it in a in a press and make this, this stuff called micarta and so i called him up and i said hey um i just found these bags what do you think we could make these into the handles and he's he was just super excited about that and so now we have uh i i ended up finishing these knives and they're they're ridiculously big and overbuilt and not a style that i normally do but um, you can chop through a tree with one of these knives and it will stay sharp and it, it won't hurt the, the knife. Um, and so there's a bigger one and a smaller one, but they're both just big knives. I remember you showing me pictures of that on your phone of fire to fire. And I was just, you know, drooling like, oh, that's so cool. Just, just crazy and so much fun. Well, so he gets these knives and he, he now... Um, he's taken them with him and he's, he's deployed and he's taken them in his deployment. And so now 
we're going back to that connection with our, our ancestral warrior cultures and being able to be the person who produces a tool and, and hopefully he doesn't have to use them to defend himself, but maybe he will. Um, and, and knowing and having the confidence that it will serve him well in that setting, no matter where he's at. Oh yeah, I pity the fool who's gonna be on the receiving end of either of those. Tell you. <laughs> but <clears throat> that process of, of making the handle and incorporating that piece of history into the knife was just really, that was a lot of fun. Uh, so coming up, I have another Bowie knife I'm working on. It's a Farrier's Rasp Bowie. And I've recently gotten a hold of uh, some old cast iron, excuse me, wrought iron wagon wheels. Oh, and wow. so we're going to incorporate some of this wrought iron into the handle and the guard. And um, so that's that's one of my upcoming projects that I'm excited about. Um, and every once in a while, I'll have somebody who just wants a good everyday knife that they can carry around and use. And uh, a couple of years ago, um, I made a knife, it was three, three or four years ago, I made a knife for a guy um, that uh, is a, a trapper, a professional trapper. And um, just this last year, he sent me a picture of the knife and he says, it's, you know, he says, I, I never have to sharpen it. It holds an edge like crazy. And I, <clears throat> I use it uh, almost every day. And so it's, I don't know, it's very, very rewarding to know that these, these tools and this art that I'm making is being used and being appreciated. Um, so yeah, I, that was probably a really long way to answer that question, but it's, it's something that was exactly what I was hoping to hear though, is here, here's some of that good information that, you know, the, the real things that have been awesome for you to work on. So you're, you're obviously taking commissions then for this type of work and you make baskets too, which we didn't have a ton of time to go into today, but, uh, <laughs> I make baskets as, um, I'd mentioned to you over the break that, um, I don't sell a lot of baskets. I love making them. And my wife has a rule that I can't have more baskets than people <laughs> in the same room. So if I make a new basket and, and we've got too many of them, I eventually have to sell some. So they come up for sale every once in a while. I don't do a lot of commissions for baskets uh, because all of the basket material I use is, is hand harvested. And um, so I go through, there's a whole process there. You don't just go out and cut down willows and make a basket. There's, yeah. It can take several weeks just for one basket. So yeah, we don't sell a lot of those, but we do occasionally. So when they come up for sale, you got to snatch them up really quickly. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, you should probably just start taking a waiting list. <laughs> I, You know, my knife waiting list right now is about three months. So I don't doubt uh, it. I don't doubt it. Well, the guy who's waiting on these bows, I think it's, it's been over a year. But he's patient because he knows that the, the end result is going to be worth the wait. So. <laughs> Man, especially with a new project like that, though, there's so much, you know, what I would refer to as research and development that needs to go into it. So that, like you said, you as the craftsman are confident with the the product that you are providing somebody with that they're paying good, good money for uh, to be able to get as, as a really good, really good historical piece and functional piece and, mm -hmm. you know, everything else. So, well, Dan, you know, how can people get in touch with you for traditions education? What ages of kids do you teach? Things like that. And uh, where are you located? So I'm located in the Treasure Valley area of Idaho. So around the Boise area. 
Um, and if people want to get in touch with us, social media has been a real blessing. Um, it's one of the best ways to reach out to us or, and, and at least find out what we're up to. If you want to follow along and you don't live in our area, but you're curious and you want to kind of see what we're up to. Uh, so if you go to Facebook and look up Traditions Education, you can find us there and on Instagram. So we post on both of those places. Um, so that's a good place to kind of find us. We have uh, some camps, summer camps coming up uh, where we're teaching things. Uh, and then during the school year, um, we're not a really big school. We we only have about 50 students. and um, <clears throat> But uh, we're very focused in what we do. So if people are interested in getting involved during the school year, they can reach out to us and we can talk more about that. Um, and then as far as the bladesmithing or bow making um, or some of the survival instruction that I do, most of that we do through the, the 4D Blades business. So that's uh, on Facebook and Instagram at the number four, the letter D and the word Blades, B-L-A-D-E-S. Those are both very good ways to reach out to me. If you are interested in uh, getting a copy of my book that I am working on, um, as long as you're patient, because like everything I do, it's important to me that this is really high quality and it will serve people really well. Uh, you can follow along with, uh, with what I have going on there. I have been posting information, uh, excerpts from the book in uh, the Traditions Education uh, Facebook and Instagram pages. So there's a ton of really good plant information that's coming out through that as well. Uh, so that's another place that you can kind of check us out and, and look things up. Um, and I, if you haven't noticed, I love talking about this stuff. Um, and so <laughs> you're, you're always welcome to reach out to me. Connections with people is really important. Um, it, one of the common phrases we hear about primitive skills and ancestral skills gatherings is you come for the skills, but you stay for the community. Yeah, We're trying to build a community of like-minded people who believe in and support these these kinds of things. And so if you want to be part of that community, we're very welcoming and we we love and support the people around us. So um, we we invite you to to be part of that and to join us in that community. Man, that is so cool. Uh, do you have if I remember right recently I saw that you actually have a primitive weapons class for kids like an entire how, how, how long is that like is it a workshop is it a week-long thing is it a camp what does that look like yeah we're doing a week-long camp it's going to be full days uh, from 8 30 to uh, 3 o'clock um, from Monday to Friday it, we're starting August 2nd and going through the 6th and when I was when I was a kid, I would have died and gone to heaven if I had had access to a camp like Me this. Me too. Me too. There's a lot going on in this camp. Of course, we're learning the historical part of the the weapons. We're learning how to make them and how to use them, but we're also learning some of the physics principles that goes into making and using good tools, um, and um, some of the the connection. Um, with with effective learning processes so <clears throat> this is a great opportunity for kids it's it's funny to me um a mistake people often make is they'll think that primitive weapons or weapons or whatever kind of thing um can be scary the, the reality is, is they're not uh as humans we're we're strangely wired to want to throw things 
um, <laughs> and our physiology matches being able to throw things. Yeah. And so um, we have we have kids signing up right now. I think the youngest is a little gal who's seven years old and the oldest is 17. Um, and so we have that whole age range and we, we scale the activities and the learning experiences to their developmental level. So they're able to have a good time and enjoy themselves regardless of what age they are um, and coming into these camps. So, and we'll be, we'll be holding that here in the, uh, the Treasure Valley area. Excellent. And for those of you, Treasure Valley, greater Boise kind of area in Idaho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's, this is absolutely fantastic. I would have, like you said, died and gone to heaven if I would have had that opportunity as a kid, because you guys are making atlatls, you're making bows, you're making rabbit sticks, you're making, what else did you mention? Uh, we'll be doing some primitive trapping. We'll show them how to make nets. Uh, how to make trap triggers and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's, uh, oh, actually we'll be adding in uh, some things about uh, making decoys and all of the elements that our ancestors used to feed themselves and protect themselves. It's, it's we're gonna have a lot of fun. And the kids aren't gonna know that they're getting something that every one of us adults wish we had had, but they're gonna, it'll be a memory that, um, they'll will be one of those formative memories in their life exactly completely foundational so that's that's the one that we've recently announced we are also holding um, the week after a mountain man survival camp where we're exploring different survival skills fire building um, <clears throat> shelter building that kind of thing and in addition to that we are kind of looking at it through the lens of the fur trade and um, the interaction of the the mountain men that we're coming through the Idaho area. And then the final camp that we're doing for this year is a bladesmithing camp. And here's, here's the, the cool thing about this bladesmithing camp. It's a week long camp um, and this is just for kids. So we'll be working with kids from 10 to 17 and teaching them this process of how to forge a knife. And man, if I had had this when I was just getting into it, I'd be <laughs> a lot further than I am now. But uh, yeah, we'll be doing the whole process of forging the knife. We'll be exploring the geometry and physics of good knife design, some of the art and um, uh, principles of design that go into developing those. And then of course the history and where we come from and why we design knives the way that we do and looking at different cultures and how they might've done things a little bit differently. So it's, it's gonna be a lot of fun. So we have those big three camps that we're doing this year. Um, we've, uh, we've wrapped up our ancestral skills gatherings uh, until rabbit stick, which is coming up in September, uh, which by the way, I will be at this year Brilliant. Um, and teaching. We don't know what I'm teaching yet, but you know, when they call you up and say, Hey, we really want you to come teach. Then you just, you figure it yeah, out. So. Exactly. Yeah. That's really cool. Our, uh, I, he's more than an employee to us. I almost use the term employee, but he, he does like all of our fulfillment and shipping. His name is Jared uh we came back from fire to fire and he's like damn i really wanted to go and it's like well you should go to rabbit stick that one's been around the longest and it's probably the the biggest one these days as well you know it's been around for something like 35 years or something so yeah i think this is year 33 uh we missed a year uh last year but uh yeah it's been around for a long time yeah. and the largest and longest running ancestral skills gathering in the world 
It's so, so it's, cool. it's a big deal. It is a way big deal. I, I strongly encourage everybody who's listening, if you're interested in uh, primitive living, primitive skill sets, um, you know, ancestral living, all of these different types of things, you know, fire making, you know, if you've ever watched Alone or any of these survival shows, you really ought to prioritize going to one of these events. And it's exactly what Dan said. My, my experience with Fire to Fire was exactly epitomized by what you said earlier, which was you come for the skills and you stay for the community. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, cool, Dan. Uh, is there anything else that uh, that you'd like to get across to anybody? Like uh, the, the school year, the upcoming school year is starting. Uh, do you still have room for registrations? Um, we, we do have a couple of spots open, um, but it's the kind of thing that you have to jump on right away. Uh, so um, like I say, we only have 50 students yeah. uh, uh, as a result. Um, once you get in, uh, you want to hang on to it as long as you yeah. can. So yeah, we do have a couple of spots open uh, if you're living in this area. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that I would hold off on. Um, we will have a waiting list. Uh, we have more than 90 people who've expressed interest in this year. So I can't promise that you'd be able to get in. However, because of the extra classes and um, and programs that we offer, you'll be able to get into part of it, even if you can't get into the regular school year. Cool. Um, and if, I, if I'm gonna add something to that, um, one of the reasons we're able to do what we're doing is because of a phenomenal community that surrounds us. We have a lot of supportive families um, but in addition to that, there's a number of really great uh, outdoor school type programs in uh, this area, this greater Boise area, Treasure Valley area. And um, I'm good friends with many of the people who are running these programs and they're working hard and doing really good things. So if you can't get in with our program, um, but you would like to reach out to us, we can help you connect with some of the other people that are out there and working really hard to do good things. Super cool. Well, we're just about out of time. Again, you can uh, be in touch with Dan, especially through Facebook and Instagram at Traditions Education. That's on FB, that's on IG. You can also uh, find them at 4D Blades. That's the number four, letter D, and then the word Blades. Um, and uh, that's probably going to be the best ways to interact with him, get in touch with him. Uh, and learn about the different things that are going on. You'll see, just like I have recently, tons of cool content, pictures, videos. Uh, my favorite thing is where you stoically come on with new knives that you've made and just cut paper like it's butter. Uh, and, yeah, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's just so cool. Uh, and really, we just barely even scratch the surface of things that uh, we can talk about. One of these times, I'd like to have you back on. We'll talk about maybe setting up a forge. Of course, when you release your book, we want to have you back on and talk about that. So, man, th this is hopefully the first of uh, many conversations that we can have. So uh, if I you guys so. like this episode, please be sure to, if you're watching on YouTube or listening on YouTube, be sure to like, subscribe, hit that bell notification, leave some comments, let us know about what you might want to learn more about or other questions that we could ask for, uh, ask Dan here in the future. And um, if you really like this content and the content that we're putting out, 
the best way that you can help support us is just simply get the word out. Of course, visit our website. Everything at our apothecary always helps to support this mission. It takes a lot of time and effort for my team and I to be able to book people and to schedule people in to, to be able to make this content free. Uh, so any support that you can offer, offer us is, is really, really appreciated, but especially just getting the word and the message out about this podcast. Well, Dan, I want to thank you so much once again for coming on Alchemiculture. It's been a pleasure talking with you as always, brother. Yeah, thank you so much. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Alchemiculture. Until next time, have a great one.